Hey, it's Greg. Welcome to the Toronto Today podcast for Friday, October 15th, heading into the weekend. And we do it with a bit of an A-lister. Peter Mansbridge has a new book out. It's number one, number one seller across Canada right now. Maybe no surprise called Off the Record. And it's lots of great stories about his broadcasting career, his journey into uh, and and uh, broadcasting and the up and downs that occur, even for men like Peter Mansbridge. They're all in this book. So we talked to him about that and some of those anecdotes. We find out more about the new QR code for Ontario, a woman in a long-distance relationship in Ontario with somebody in Florida, her boyfriend. She's seen him twice in 20 months. They're still solid as a rock, like the song says. But what happens now that the land borders open and we do what happened when on this day, October 15th? It's the Toronto Today podcast. Thanks for finding us. Thanks for listening. But this one's a special one. Off the Record is the name of the book. You know him very well uh, for years. Uh, CBC's host of The National and uh, chief political correspondent. He is Peter Mansbridge. I say that um, the, the pandemic, you've been prolific. We've seen music artists put out, you know, a couple albums at a time. I guess we've all had to find things to do to take places of the things we used to do, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, if there was one thing about the pandemic, it did make sitting down writing easy because you didn't have anything else <laughs> to compete with that. Uh, I wrote this book uh, through the summer, mostly last summer. Um, and, uh, you know, and then there was a lot of obviously editing uh, going on as well uh, throughout this year. But uh, it's out there now and uh, we're pretty excited about the way it's, uh, it's taken hold uh, in the first week. Peter, would you have gotten to a book like this eventually? Did the pandemic just expedite that process where you had that chunk of time to to write about yourself and and your journeys through broadcasting? I was under a lot of pressure to, you know, to write a, they call it a memoir. I I don't, I don't like that term. Uh, But, uh, you know, it's a a collection of anecdotes, as, as you suggest, you know, different things that happened to me in my, in my career, how they, they shape me and how, they tell us all a little something about how journalism works and and how the country works. Uh, so people were trying to get me to do it. I'd always resisted. And I said, well, I'll do it if, as long as it can be the kind of stories that, you know, I tell over dinner with friends. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, when people say to you, what was so-and-so really like? You know, that interview you did with them. And you don't talk about the interview. You talk about what the person was like, right, and things that happened around the interview. And that's the kind of book it is, the story behind the story. As you can tell, Peter Mansford is joining us on Toronto today. We're pleased to have him. The book is called Off the Record on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. People um, even have asked me this, and I ask other uh, media types this. I said, I said to them, how, how did you know to keep going? And my answer always is, well, you just, you know, you, you keep thinking you're making progress, chugging along. You're doing something you love. Um, you know there's going to be pitfalls. Of course there will be. Um, is it similar to, to, to that with you? If someone says, well, how did you know to keep going and climbing the ladder and advancing? Um, similar to that? Yeah, in some ways, uh, you know, I was focused right from the start. I mean, I had a peculiar start in Churchill, Manitoba. You know, it was the smallest radio station in the country. Uh, so there was a lot of working up the ladder that I had to do, but it doesn't, it, it doesn't come easy. You know that, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes things work out. Other times they don't. Um, you know, I, I, there were a lot of jobs I applied for along the way that I didn't get, but I learned from every setback and, uh, you know, and, and kept pushing ahead. You, you stay focused, you know, you're, you're convinced that you're good enough to do the next move. 
So you just have to, um, you know, show that those abilities to to others that you can do it. It's a weird one too, because we all want to be, uh, you know, all things to all people sometimes personally, professionally. And I, I think you realize really fast in our business, let's say, uh, what you're good at, what you're really good at, what you can improve at. I know the things I'm not good at. That's the, that's the thing to do is to say, well, would you want to try this? No, nah, that's out of my wheelhouse. That it feels like the people that have the longevity and do have a career as exceptional as you, you know, you can interview, you know, you can host a tentacle, like you knew what to, what to stay with and, 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 uh, and sort of chip away at and, uh, and, and tighten all those edges to where you become what you became. Yeah. Uh, listen, that's a really good point you make. You know, if you know what you're good at and you focus on those things, you try to prove, uh, improve in areas where you're not so good. But at a certain point, you realize, you know what? That isn't in my wheelhouse, as you say. Focus, let me focus on what works for me, what I do well, and, uh, you know, and stick with it. And that's what I did. Uh, you know, over, over the years, I was lucky. I got to work with a lot of really good people. And, uh, and when you do that and, uh, uh, and you're lucky, they cover it for you in the areas where, where you're not so good. <laughs> 30 years uh, with the national, the book is called off the record. Peter Mantras is joining us on global news radio, 640 Toronto. Did, um, who inspired you as a broadcaster growing up and, and did the late night shows that's, that's sort of, you know, I'm a, I'm a letterman kid. I would watch him. I, I'm young. I'm still old enough to have watched Johnny Carson. So that whole Carson Leno letterman thing always fascinates me, but late night hosts, did they appeal to you? Did you say I can learn things about, you know, being spontaneous about interviewing from, from some of those greats? You got to understand that when I started, uh, you didn't have a lot of options in terms of other television networks or other programs. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was in Churchill, which was the, you know, I, I had never thought about broadcasting. Suddenly I was in it. And for the first three years of my career, it was all radio. There was no television in Churchill. The TV film came up a week late. So everything was a week late in Churchill in back in the late 60s. Uh, we watched the moon landing a week after everybody else right. watched it. You'd watch hockey on Saturday night. It was last Saturday night's game. It was almost a conspiracy in town. Not, you know, if by some reason you found out what had happened in the game, you couldn't tell anybody because we try to watch that game on a Saturday night thinking we don't know who's going to win. Uh, so that was the start. So there was no Johnny Carson or, you know, other late night stuff. Um, but listen, I, you know, I, 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 I looked up to the, you know, Walter Cronkites and then eventually the Tom Brokaws, uh, of this, uh, world and, and of the broadcasting world as uh, figures who I admired, you know, you, it, it's a dangerous game. You don't want to copy people. Mm-hmm. You can admire people. You can have respect for people, but if you start copying other people, People see through that, you know, they, they can, they can tell what you're doing. And you, you know, the thing is you develop, as you said earlier, you develop your own skills and what you're best at, but you also develop your own style and uh, you know, and go with it uh, when you're comfortable with it. We talked uh, with the nine 11 anniversary and a couple of weeks before our most recent federal election. Um, you did so many elections on, uh, on the CBC, um, dipping into provincial elections as well with, with some, you know, um, real benchmark nights, memorable evenings that people remember. The adrenaline probably, it probably just runs a little bit different on that day and night. Um, tell our audience about that and, and if it does and 
and knowing, uh, knowing it's, it's just, you know, not, our lives won't be the same after that particular evening, one way or the other. On the big nights, you know, the, the unpredictable nights, the nine 11s, that kind of thing. Uh, although there were not, <laughs> it was only one nine 11, but you get the picture when you're yeah. dealing with those kind of stories that kind of come out of num- nowhere, the adrenaline does really push. And you can, it's not like you can fall asleep after the show. You're just too wired. Um, and I used to, you know, like go out for a walk, you know, often a long walk in whatever city I happened to be in covering whatever story I happened to cover. Uh, but those are also the kind of nights when you finally do get to bed, you say, man, I wish that day had never ended mm-hmm. because it, it, it is so exciting going through working with a team um, who are all really good at their respective jobs, whether they're on air or behind the scenes. Uh, and those are the days you live for. I mean, the daily newscast, the, the normal day can be pretty dry. You know, you, <laughs> you, you tend to, you know, put all your energy into every program you do, but not every day is the same. You know, some days are very different. And those are the days that you uh, you don't want to miss. I thought I thought about that with the results came out. The results basically were a mirror image of the polls. Uh, the polls had them right. We don't tend to have a lot of, I guess, you know, you're a massive sports fan. We don't have, tend to have a lot of upsets. We don't have the 2000 Bush Gore election. We sure don't have the 2016 Trump Hillary election. We're we seem pretty predictable. Either that or the pollsters just just have figured us out. I I I'm trying to think of a night where you've been on during an election where the result is just st- maybe the NDP majority uh, in 90. Like that's all I can think of for, for all the elections you would have done. Well, there have been a few, the very first one I was on television for first time I was in a CBC studio. I wasn't anchoring the big network uh, broadcast, whatever it was. I was doing the uh, kind of local cutaways in Winnipeg it was 72. And that one was a cliffhanger. And you didn't know who was actually going to form the government until like four or five o'clock in the morning. Uh, it, it, it was it was really close. Um, you know, others, uh, you know, proved to be exciting in different ways. I mean, the 93 federal election, when the conservatives who'd had a majority government, a majority government, right? They had whatever, a couple hundred seats or 180 seats or something. And they came back with two. Well, you know, yes. That's pretty stunning. Uh, so, so that was, you know, that was quite a night when the NDP uh, formed the opposition in 2011. That was a big story, Jack Layton. Uh, so, I mean, there, there are nights um, where the pollsters may not necessarily get it wrong, but the way the splits work in different ridings uh, can really... Uh, uh, make things look strange. Like both the last two elections, federal, the liberals won and they won comfortably, minority governments, but still they won comfortably. And yet the conservatives had more votes. Yeah. Now that's, you know, that's odd. That's not the way it's supposed to work, <laughs> but it does every once in a while. And it, at different times, it's benefited uh, different parties. Peter Mansbridge is our guest, Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. His book called Off the Record in stores right now. And, of course, you can get it uh, online, Amazon, and wherever else you uh, you end up getting books. Um, I mentioned Late Night Host. I remember watching Johnny Carson say goodbye. You had a goodbye show. And Johnny Carson said, when I find something that I can 
dive into um, with the same passion. Uh, you know, I hope you'll join me. It was some variation of that when he gave way to right. Jay Leno in 92. You found stuff pretty quickly um, and you're busy. W- were you sure it's on your own terms, but were you sure you would be? Did you did you think maybe maybe I maybe retired means retired? Maybe it's like, uh, you know, a pro athlete and that's it. I don't look at a hockey stick again or I don't re- pick up a newspaper or log on and check out all the headlines again. W- w- what was that time like? Well, you know, it's funny because I didn't need to do anything else. Like I, I looked after myself well. I planned things well uh, in terms of when I wanted to pull out. I always said, I, I you know, I'm not going to, I won't do the national with a seven in front of my age. So I, you know, I was out of there 69 and a half or something. And, uh, and, and I, but I always knew I'm going to keep doing something. The CBC didn't want to totally break the connection with me. They wanted me to do some documentaries. And so I've been doing a couple of one hour docs a year since then. And they've been a lot of fun. I was just up in the Arctic for a couple of weeks doing one on uh, uh, climate change and Arctic mm-hmm. sovereignty that will run probably in February or March. Uh, so there's that there's, I do a regular podcast, which I started as a, a hobby. It was just like a, you know, something for fun to do at home. And uh, it took off, became very successful. And, and then there was kind of a mini bidding war uh, to buy the distribution rights by from a couple of different organizations. And I ended up uh, making an arrangement with Sirius XM. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I do that. I give speeches. I teach at the University of Toronto. I sit on a bunch of boards uh, and I write books. <laughs> it sounds pretty busy. But as you said earlier, it's on my pace. Like I, I can decide how much I want to do when I want to do it. And uh, that works out quite well. I want the next book to be on the bidding wars. Um, I love those books. I love those, type, <laughs> those media uh, pulls and uh, pulls and pushes and, uh, and hey. back and forth. <laughs> sure. It might, it might not be as many pages as off the record, but it's, no, you know. it's a pretty short story. Really. <laughs> <laughs> it's more, yeah, it's more a fable. I guess a fable than uh, a true yeah. fable. The prime minister mentioned this the other day um, uh, at at a, a conference in Sweden about anti-Semitism, an incredibly worthy cause, quite obviously, given what we're going through right now with a lot of um, groups and ethnicities under fire. It's it's um, it just it feels that way. The the, the heat never stops, um, and it's about disinformation, and it's it's trickier than ever. It's very it's very difficult. Um, you know, I, I, I think there's a, a rock star, Noel Gallagher from Oasis, and he said, we're just going to tell everybody that you were the best band in the world and half the people will believe it. And I'm like, did politicians listen to that? Because I think they that's sort of the the Donald Trump flood the zone. That that was the, the, the methodology described. How how have you seen it evolve? It it must be frustrating to look and go there. And COVID is just like that as well. We've never been more, more polarized over a single topic probably than COVID and restrictions and keeping yourself healthy. Yeah. We listen, there's, we live in an era of enormous. Um, um, there's an enormous amount of information out there. Never before in the history of the planet has it been so easy to get information. However, a lot of that information is garbage. Uh, you know, it circulates on the internet, circulates through social media, um, and it, it puts the onus not just on legitimate news organizations to ensure they're dealing with accurate 
uh, in-context information, but it also puts an onus on the public to ensure that what they're using for information is real and that it's, uh, uh, that the, it's put out by organizations that are accountable for what they do. Now, you know, I've, one of the classes I was teaching at the U of T before the, before the pandemic struck, I said, I asked the students, and they were all postgraduate students. I said, what's your most trusted source of information? Where do you go mm-hmm. to be convinced um, uh, of the information you're getting? And in the, you know, not that long ago, most people answered that question, said television news. Then it was radio and then print. It was kind of in that order. Um, none of them were the top of the answers by the 100 students who were in this class. They said their most trusted source of information was social media. So Facebook, Twitter. Um, now, listen, there's a lot of good stuff in both those social media uh, platforms, but there's also a lot of garbage. And if you're not careful, you start mixing in the garbage with the truth, and that's where misinformation starts to get out of hand. And, um, you know, so people have to, you know, the, the consumer has to be accountable as well for what they're reading, what they're using to base their um positions on certain issues so you know we got a problem out there right now with misinformation there's no question about that we have a problem the media has a problem generally although you got to be careful because the media is not a monolith all organizations operate differently but the relationship between the people and um the uh, and the media is tenuous right now over the issue of trust what to believe and I think we have to be, you know, much more transparent uh, in explaining what we do and how we do it, uh, because that can bring back the trust factor. Because there's no, there's no question we've lost, we've lost some of that uh, with our various publics from the different uh, platforms that we operate from. So well said. I find that irony too. Where I remember in 2009, um, a boss said to me, a program director said, you got to get on Twitter. You got to get on this new thing. Everybody's going to be on it. And I was really hesitant. I think it took a 30 email and he's like, no, no, I'm, I'm not asking anymore. You need to be on there. So then you do it and you experience it. And you're right. You, you call information and, and you, yeah, you can meet people, make conversations, but then we're now at this point where I think many bosses are telling their employees, what's the benefit of you being on there? Like, what's the win? Where, where do we get the win if you're on there and you make a mistake or you go with some bad information and like 12 years later, there's, there's people that were telling their employees to be on there, newspapers and whatnot. And I feel like they're running for the Hills right now because of what it's become. Yeah. It's been an interesting thing. We were all pushed into this. I, <laughs> I, I know certainly in my case, I've resisted for, for a long time before I uh, started uh, you know tweeting and this and that and the other thing. And I was extremely careful and never to, uh, you know, make any outlandish statements. Uh, I do occasionally now, usually around sports. <laughs> um, Starting goalies and uh, bullpens. Yeah, that kind of safe stuff. Being, that's the problem with being a Leafs fan. But, uh, but no, I mean, there are other journalists who on air um, 
are, are you know, straight up and, and don't have opinions, but in social media, they have opinions as if they're, these are two totally distinct and different uh, operations and nobody's going to look at your opinions on social media and think it influences perhaps the way you tell a story uh, on your uh, regular format, which of course is not the case. You know, they, they, uh, the, the, that is how they're seen. So we got a problem. There's so many different levels of problems and it's ironic really, because at the same time, what this ability to gain information um, online is, has changed the way we live. Uh, I mean, there's so much good in it mm-hmm. um, that it's scary to think that the bad is starting to uh, appearing to outweigh the good. Uh, and there's people are totally non as to trying to explain what we're going to do about it to fix it, to change it. Yeah. Um, last question for you. I know you're giving up time tonight, also during a, a Leafs game. Um, and But I'm, I'm told there's 80, 80 of them remaining. So I've got that on a good source that... Yeah, uh, you know, a two and zero start would uh, would wouldn't you know would get people excited. I give you that. Um, it doesn't see, look like it's heading in that direction. Back to back nights, right? Those back to backers. You you can't get yeah. past them. Um, but it, the CBC, you know, we talked about channel options earlier. That's where your career started and finished. Um, and I was a CBC kid. It was on in our house all the time. I know the shows. I know the Beachcombers. I know Tommy Hunter was on. At a certain not Dallas, right? There was Dallas on right before the SCTV. Anyway, it was always on. And now it's so the CBC feels very politicized every time there's a federal election. I'm sure you lived this out um, in some of your last years at CBC. Um, there's tension when a conservative government says we're going to cut it. And then there's relief when Justin Trudeau wins and we're not. It's I don't know that you saw that coming 15, 20 years ago, where it's like an election issue is what we do with Canada's national broadcaster, right? Yeah, I I mean, I've always not had a lot of time for this argument around surrounding, you know, the various governments and how they look at the CBC. You know, first of all, the CBC was started by the Conservatives. It was a conservative idea in the early 30s for all the right reasons. Uh, and many of those reasons still exist today, and it might be worthy of some CBC executives to look it up, see why they CBC was even created in the first place. Um, here's another misconception. The biggest cuts that have ever been leveled on the CBC, budget cuts, were done by a liberal government, not a conservative government. And it was Craig Martin in the early 90s. Uh, they really uh, took the knife to the CBC. And um, Craigian was never a big fan of CBC, mainly uh, Roger Canada. He thought they were full of separatists. Okay. Conservatives think they're full of communists. <laughs> you know, like it, it, they may, they also, make strange bedfellows, don't they? Communists yeah, and separatists. Yeah. <laughs> it's also ridiculous because, you know, those who feel that the CBC is in the pocket of the liberals, should go to a few liberal cabinet ministers who've had to resign over CBC journalism. Mm-hmm. The biggest name appointment of the of this current government was a governor general who had to resign because of problems that were exposed by the CBC and the way she handled uh, things at Rideau Hall. Um, you know, conservatives have had to resign because of uh, CBC journalism you know, because they've been exposed to, in, in wrongdoing, certainly through the Mulroney years, that 
that happened more than uh, more than a few times. Um, so, you know, I, the CBC. Here's what I'll say on the CBC. The CBC is full of a lot of really talented people right across the country in CBC buildings from coast to coast to coast. Uh, my fear for the CBC is the strategic direction it gets uh, from those who are in, who are placed in positions of, you know, executive management. Not all of them. Some very, uh, there have been some very good ones. But, um, but some of them have no idea about anything about broadcasting. And some of the decisions they've made after they spent two or three years trying to understand what the CBC is all about, have been have had a lasting negative impact on the place. So it, you know it's tough, uh, but the CBC is not is not the place a lot of people think it is on the political side. It's full of a lot of journalists from different parts of the country, different backgrounds, different feelings about different issues. And that mix creates the news uh, that we, or the, the, the journalists the CBC put on every day. Uh, and, it, and it is a mix. I mean, I always used to tell young journalists, if you're in a newsroom and there, are, there aren't nightly arguments about what we're doing on the program, you're not in a good place. You want that debate. You want that discussion uh, happening all the time. And, uh, and, Man, I was in lots of them at the CBC, and it, people assumed that I won every argument I was in. That's not the case. <laughs> I didn't, and I knew when I'd lost. And uh, and I was, you know, I I was glad to see a different argument take hold and and eventually accept it. Um, so all this stuff about how it's all you know run by some Politburo is just garbage. You know, like a lot of garbage you read. I worry I'm going to follow just to like my comment listening to all that is such got such depth and and obviously interior knowledge is I think people look to to make us more like the states, but we don't have a Fox News here and we don't have an MSNBC. And I I know even with talk radio, people don't they want you to play it as much up the middle, a conservative, a completely conservative talk radio station would fail and a completely left of center talk radio station would fail. People, people will pick and choose. They'll, they'll make it like a smorgasbord in Canada more so than the States where I think they're looking for affirmation and politics are, are much more tribal. I know we think we are, it's nothing like what it is in America. No. And, and you know, and how long ago was it? 10 years ago that they, they tried a conservative mm -hmm. television network in Canada. It didn't, it didn't work. It failed. Um, why have the liberals been more successful in elections over time than the conservatives? Because they play for the middle. In this last election, the conservatives tried to play for the middle. Uh, and it cost Aaron O'Toole some support within his own party who didn't want to be close to the middle. They wanted to be further away towards the right. Uh, so, they, you know, there's the push and pull that exists within parties. Uh, is usually around the narrow edges that are close to the middle. The NDP does its best when it's closer to the middle from the left. The conservatives seem to do best when they're closer to the middle from the right. I mean, Stephen Harper was a, a pretty right-wing guy, but he knew if he was going to win, he had to be closer to the middle. And he was tough on his party and his caucus members to ensure they didn't go um, 
uh, too extreme on the road. He didn't want them uh, parading around looking for uh, changes in the abortion laws, capital punishment laws, all of that. He said, that's not going to happen as long as I'm the leader. And it's certainly not going to happen if we're the government. And it didn't. Love our conversation. Congratulations on the book, Off the Record. Uh, people can find it uh, in bookstores on Amazon.ca. Uh, I know you're headed to Scotland. I heard that. I heard a rumor about that. So have a great trip uh, to uh, to Scotland. Uh, safe travels over there. And uh, and I really appreciate you coming on, spending time with me and, and our listeners. Uh, it, it's, it's just such an honor. Thank you. Craig, thank you very much. Thanks for promoting the book. Indigo. Obviously, you push the Canadian side, Indigo. You know, Amazon, you're right. You can get it at Amazon. You can get it at Costco. You can get any number of different places. And enough people got it in its first week, its debut week, that it was finished number one in the rankings. That's fantastic. And I'm sure you're. Uh, that's amazing achievement. And I'm sure you're going to take a couple hundred to Scotland and just look, whoa, how did those get there? Why did, why did those end selling, up? I'll be selling them on the plane. <laughs> <laughs> in my, yeah, chicken or fish, um, you know, off the record, along with it. When, you can even have, a, have it with the kosher meal. It works that way. Um, thank you very much for the time, Peter. Always appreciate it. Okay, Greg. Take care. But what does it mean from the inside? Let's talk to somebody who would know uh, his website, thinkstart.ca. Um, Mohit uh, Rajan's our guest um, he, he writes also on the website I've had an amazing amount of success guesting on shows radio and podcasts Mohit that ends this morning I'm sorry to tell you at this point <laughs> <laughs> Greg I gotta tell you very quickly that uh, I appreciate you having me on the show but I almost got late for this interview because I was listening to your wonderful interview with Beer Mansbridge <laughs> and, and then all of a sudden I was like oh wait a minute I'm not casually listening to the show I have to actually be on it so I, I, I'm already in the good books as far as I'm concerned I'm already winning on this show oh you are we're we're happy to have you and yeah you can tell the grandkids someday you followed up peter mansbridge uh, exactly. like, like I, he I've was like the opening act for you he just came out acoustic <laughs> guitar played a few songs but you've got all the dry ice and the lasers and the and the, and the backup Greg, singers i've already updated my bio it's already there <laughs> that i've once followed peter mansbridge on greg brady's show oh, so appreciate that um, but back to QR codes, I'm sorry I, I digress, but definitely uh, what do you want to talk about with reference to this exciting time? Well, I, I worry that, you know, like anything else, uh, we know that we got to, you know, kill, you know, stamp out misinformation and, and, and purposeful disinformation. So I worry people be like this app, it's being rushed. They've probably known for months on end and many other businesses have had this type of technology. MLSE is obviously working with the province with this type of technology. So it should be pretty ironclad. I don't know that there's going to be any technological hiccups. What do you expect? Well, for one thing, I think we need to remind people what a QR code is, right? So QR definitely stands for quick response. And it's really, it looks, you've seen it around town for, for over a decade. You know, it, it looks like a, mm -hmm. a puzzle piece that somebody spilt water on. And so there, it doesn't necessarily immediately stand out as a functional thing until you show somebody what it looks like. So with these quick response code, what we have are static ones or dynamic ones. So a static one would give you general information. Let's say you're trying to get into your work building and you want to know about the hours of operation, et cetera. That stays pretty static. You scan the code and it gives you that information. A dynamic one is ever-changing. And that's where it gets a little tricky because that requires your phone to keep sending information back and forth to a certain place. And those types of triggers have a lot of people concerned about where that information is going. A lot of people are still hesitant to to put everything, uh, whether it's I get nervous about having like concert tickets on the phone. I've never done the boarding pass, by the way, Mohit. I've never I know people do it. I'm always worried something's going to 
pop off with my phone. I, I remember that during the BlackBerry era. I'm like, this this phone could crap out at any moment. Um, are people going to have that sort of edge about it and maybe even bring backup documents to, uh, because they're concerned? Yeah, already you see people sort of doing the Macarena when they're looking for their <laughs> either phone or 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 or, um, or passport. So I think what they're trying, they're trying essentially the government across the country is trying to make it easier for a certain type of population who normally functions with just their smartphone to be able to show their information. But we should caution people that you still can use all forms of identification with reference to this. The other thing we have to remember is that not all phones can scan QR codes. Your phone has to be a smartphone that has been that has the ability to download these apps. And many times, if your phone's older than 2015, you're not looking at having the right functionality in your phone to, to be able to execute this. The other thing I find really interesting about this, Greg, is that when you look at apps on your phone, you have to look at one or two ways. What is it connected to and what, what are they collecting? Mm-hmm. When you as a person can determine what you let them collect and what you're able to connect to, then you'll feel a little bit more secure about the security functions of these types of apps. Mohit Rashan's our guest uh, writer and media, uh, media consultant. Thinkstart.ca is the website. So this probably forces us to bring the phones everywhere we go now. I know there's been a couple spots where they've said, well, I need your photo ID as well. That's troublesome if, if you know, if we're just carrying our phone and we think, well, my Apple wallet's on there. I've got this. I've got that. Um, I'm not going to bring an actual wallet or health card or driver's license. That's going to be intriguing if people are asking for photographic proof. I'm not sure we're going to have time for that when we're talking about big events like soccer games at BMO or concerts, are we? No, but I think that what we are going to see is the the other side of it, where we're going to see companies embracing it more and more as being more part of the experience. So on one hand, we might start seeing, you know, from a logistics standpoint, a, a company saying, you know, um, pre-scan your QR code uh, for your passport before you event this, uh, before mm-hmm. you go to this event, a link to this. But again, uh, the warnings are this, the warnings are on one hand, you want to see the companies be able to give you a seamless experience, know that you don't have any hiccups and being able to go in and out of a restaurant or venue. But on the other side, do the companies get that information? You know, because that can be very valuable for the company to know more information about their customer coming in, the, what time they come in, demographics. So again, going back to that, what's it connected to? and what's it collecting, I think what we need to think about moving forward, government aside, COVID aside, is how all of these things will be connected and sharing the information and then also how we can get rid of it and make sure it's not going to be used against us later. I got a great text question. Somebody's enjoying uh, our chat right now from Steve. And Steve says, ask him if he thinks all our paper documents uh, for ID could end up on our phone someday. And I never thought of that. So it's, that's that's why it's great to have smart listeners. Could we ever have our passport on our phone to the point where we cross a border or get on an airplane and it's on our phone? Same as driver's license, same. We can't put our driver's license on our phone right now. I believe we can obviously take a, a screenshot in case we lose it and maybe talk our way out of a, a ticket for not having our driver's license. But can we get ever get to the point where everything is paperless for us? I think we're getting to a point where mobile first becomes the real philosophy, whatever you Mm -hmm. can take with you on your phone. But I will caution everybody that if you don't have a steady, secure place online where you can back up all of your documents digitally, then don't start relying on your phone as being your prime source. It's very, whether you're saving it in a draft as an email, anything you're digitizing, make sure you have a separate place where you've kept it that doesn't rely on any sort of cloud failure or USB failure. And 
also for the senior population, for people who are taking care of the elderly, make sure you have a backup of their information with reference to their security, et cetera, when it comes down to digital and technical stuff, because you just never know. As, as great as it is, Greg, that we're going yeah. towards a place where we're becoming mobile friendly, we need to make sure that we're not stupid and that we back our stuff up because we're accountable to it. Yeah, and we can't leave people behind. So do you have a lot of confidence that that the public will have confidence that you know we're not being hacked, our privacy is not being violated, that this is going to save us time as opposed to uh, bog us down in the muck? I think public public uh, speculation about anything when it comes to technology is important because it holds people accountable. But I think the flip side is that I don't believe we have enough of the right minds working on it and at the higher up levels in government to be able to actually move towards a place where we're functional rather than worried about what some of these things are going to do to us. Mm. Mohit Rajan's our guest. Uh, it's great to have you on the show. Really enjoyed it. You're a great guest. Thanks very much for uh, for making the time for me today. Thanks, Greg. Say hi to Peter for me. You bet I will. Uh- Our next guest, uh, Ryan Imgren, and a campaign to get the proper PPE into schools, high schools and elementary schools. It doesn't matter about whether teachers are vaccinated or not. And last fall, um, you know, as well as you might think schools went, couldn't they have gotten better with proper masking? Many people would say yes. Last night, the Toronto Catholic District School Board just passed now. It's middle of October, by the way. Staff are now able to wear N95 masks with a medical mask on top. What? Where was this in July and August? Because it, it just seems like common sense. Same as vaccinations. So the boards have been late and the unions have been late on some things. Here's, by the way, what Colin Furness said about our friend Ryan Imgren. It's been an issue for personal care workers in long-term care homes, actually. They've had N95 masks taken away from them when they have been treating COVID-positive residents. So it's, it's, this is not just restricted to teachers. It's, it's really a question of denying airborne transmission in policy, and teachers are in a difficult position this way. And when a board decides they want to have a standard issue, they want to have a standardization so that everyone's treated the same, you can understand maybe why they would want to do that, but their standard is, is inadequate, I mean, grossly inadequate. Yeah, that's Colin Furness on the show yesterday. We bring in Ryan Imgren now. Uh, thanks for the time. As always, look, you, uh, you know, you, you've campaigned hard for this. You lobbied for proper PPE in schools. I, I almost wonder, if you, do you give a pass to last fall pre-vaccination, or do you even say, no, this was something, this isn't a couple months late. This is 13 or 14 months late. How do you view it? Yeah, I'll be honest. I don't think last uh, September we knew enough about airborne transmission to really recommend these kind of masks. I think at the same time, we didn't really know about the availability of these N95s. We didn't know about these KN95s and all these subsets of masks. So I like do give them a pass for last year. Mm-hmm. But I think this is something once like April, May came, we knew exactly what these masks did. We knew that we had the supply of them. This should have been strongly built into our September return to school plan. And couldn't that have started again? I guess if, if we're going to be late on, you know, vaccinations, I'll never forget talking. And, and th- these people have made their time for me. But the people that were running the ETFO union, uh, the OSSTF, they would say to me in the summer, well, you know, the vaccination is a personal health decision. And I just thought, 
I, I, I just don't, I think this is going to age badly. I've certainly said things that age badly. This is going to age badly two months from now when school is on the doorstep and, and we don't have a vaccine mandate for something as obvious as going into, you know, crowded buildings, some with bad filtration and ventilation, Ryan. And, and you got a lot of unvaccinated people there. And that's it. And, and that's the thing is that, right, when you say to someone that you have the own choice to be vaccinated and that's a personal health choice. What they're saying is that you can make a personal health choice that is going to make you less safe at work. But yet the unions were failing to intervene when individuals would want to wear a superior mask and would want to make a personal health choice that would make them more safe at work. And I think that's where a lot of people were really standing up and saying, this doesn't make sense. We can make a personal health choice with regards to vaccinations, but we can't with regards to superior PPE. Yeah, I had a friend of mine point out an analogy, and I often, uh, you know, l- like uh, like my analogies, but I thought this one made sense. This is like, let's go back to a time when the NHL didn't make people play with helmets. You and I were little kids, but you'd, you'd watch Brad Marr skating around or Craig McTavish skating around. And this is all of a sudden, if, if nobody wore helmets, and then the first few guys that wore helmets... You'd look and go, well, you're not allowed to wear helmets. Why not? I want to protect myself more. Yeah, but then you make the rest of us look bad for not wearing helmets. It's not unlike that to some extent. There's some teachers that want to take every precaution imaginable. Some are more aware of the science than others. Some might just be more skittish. And I'm not saying that negatively than others. And to deny their right to have an individual choice, like like it would be clothing they wear. I never got that. I never understood that. Yeah. And the school board response is very similar to 1930s automotive industry when they did not have padded dashboards. They had steel metallic dashboards with metal knobs that poked out when you don't have seatbelts. This led to some horrific injuries. And a lot of people were saying, we need seatbelts, we need padded dashboards. And you think it would be something that car manufacturers would easily say, yeah, we'll do it. But they didn't want to because of the added cost. Yes. They knew it was safer. They knew it was better, but the added cost scared them away. And here we are, 2021, 18 months into a serious, serious pandemic, and we have school boards doing the exact same thing with regards to superior PPE. Well, you're so true. And speaking, that's so right. And speaking of airborne, um, I started waiting tables at a time. Uh, I'm not that old, by the way, but I started waiting tables at a time when when non-smoking sections were starting to get created. And I'm telling you, restaurants had to get pushed into that, pushed hard into that. Inspectors had to come. Where's your non-smoking section? All because A, it would either cost more money or they'd be worried they'd lose customers. In reality, you're going to lose customers who want to you know, have a go into a restaurant in a smoke-free environment. Same now as you lose customers by saying, hey, we don't know who's vaccinated and who's not. Well, I'm not going. Hell, you know, you like to work out like I do. You weren't going to your gym for fear of being with unvaccinated people. And I understand that. Yeah. And that's an interesting parallel, because if you look back to the late 1990s, it was really, once again, the public health units and city councils that were actually that it was left up to to pass these motions mm-hmm. with regards to smoking inside of restaurants. Now, what it seems is that when it comes down to uh, superior masks, it's actually up to the trustees. And I never thought at the start of the school year that we'd be fully, fully relying on our school board trustees to make safe decisions because it's not public health standing up. It's not the school board standing up for teachers. And unfortunately, it's not even the union standing up for superior PPE. The only ones taking a stand right now are the Ontario school board trustees in order to get the educators 
superior PPE. Biostatistician Ryan Imgren, our guest. He's done great work getting teachers uh, PPE, uh, and and it's very appreciated, as Colin Furness mentioned on the show yesterday. So I don't take too many photographs on my phone at, at 4.30 in the morning, but I did this morning. I stopped and got gas. He, I, don't, I won't even name the company. I'm not into that kind of shaming, but here's what the sign is above where you get gas. Measures you can take at the pumps. If you have gloves, wear them. Use an available paper towel when pumping. Reduce the amount of touch time. There's about four or five messages. I guess all makes sense. I guess they're all like, yeah, I guess they keep us more safe than not safe about germs. But they really have nothing to do with COVID. I'm, I, I get signs sent to me about, you know, how Tim Horton still doesn't take refillable cups. Do you think we're moving the needle at all in terms of the practical stuff, getting a coffee, filling up for gas, where a lot of these signs just need to go? They're completely outdated. And if they're frightening even one person or a bunch of people, that's bad. Yeah. And I think especially with outdoor gas pumping, I mean, <laughs> the only sign that we should be seeing is that. We would prefer that you pay outside. If you pay inside, mm -hmm. remember to wear your mask. That's the only sign that you need. All this stuff about uh, like droplet transmission, fomite transmission, it's so last year, we just need to be looking past it now. And we need to be telling people what they can do that's safe and what they can do that's not safe. We have not done a very good job with communicating to people what they should be doing and what they shouldn't be doing. But the whole thing that underlies everything there is the fact that COVID-19 transmission is airborne. And if we got that across to people, they could then make their own choices and they'd understand, look, I'm outside pumping gas right now. I'm not going to wear gloves. I don't need to worry about how safe I am outside of my car pumping gas in an outdoor yeah. environment. They need to be looking at where it's safe, where it's not safe. I need a tight minute here, but I really want, want to hear your answer. I sent you the column Chris Selly wrote in the National Post for last night about the 14-year-old that passed away in Alberta. It's horrific. It's awful. He's got sources. No one's denied it that that 14-year-old had stage four brain cancer. We didn't know that when people were hammering Dina Hinshaw for um, feeling, you know, she was criticized for being a bit unfeeling and a bit cold about it. I, this is a, uh, you know, I'm a wreck over this story. I'm a wreck over any time a kid passes away. I'd throw myself in front of a moving car for practically any kid, let alone my own. But I think, I, I don't know, I don't know what the line is. We have to reassure the public about what COVID is and what COVID isn't. And we have to, and, and have that perspective. And, and you're a data guy, but you're also, you know, you utilize emotion in your online communication. So I don't know if we're downplaying that teenager's death when we when we mention some of the comorbidities and factors but I, I yeah i get that there's a right way and a wrong way to do it i don't envy people in public health who have to have to reveal things like this what's your thought on it well i can speak to it from a data perspective and really the magical number when it comes down to data is five we never like to state information even like percentages if it pertains to less than six or less than five people. That's kind of the magical number. So to release information about one person's health status, I don't agree with that. Mm -hmm. I don't have anything wrong that if we said something like, look, there was 100 kids who died of COVID-19, this like percentage had an underlying comorbidity, that's fine. It's that, that summary data is okay, but that individual health data 
I'm not okay with that. Yeah, I see that. Uh, yeah, I, I think there was a better way to do it, but the facts end up being the facts. And and we've talked about this before. There's just sometimes there's just not enough talk about who's more at risk here. We we are we haven't been all at the same level of risk even pre-vaccination. Um, and we knew that from from what we had to do with LTCs. So I, I got to leave it there. Thank you so much for the time. Have a great weekend, Ryan. Great stuff. And and thank you for your advocacy for teachers. I know it means a lot to them. I hear from them and they say, thank Ryan for this. So thank you. Be great. Take it easy. The land board is reopening. This is good news for an awful lot of people. It doesn't come uh, completely without cost, though. The PCR test you got to get on the way back. Uh, we've had her on the station before, and uh, we're bringing on Kara Harris, who lives in Alliston, Ontario. I've driven through Alliston, and uh, her boyfriend lives in Florida, and she joins us now. Kara, thanks for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Good morning, Greg. Thanks for having me again. It's great to have you. By the way, shout shout out to anyone that can make a long distance relationship last. I think my longest was about nine days. And they're like, uh, you know, you're arguing who's going to come see you, who, who's doing this, who's um, you may you're making it work. It's great. Yes. Yes. The pandemic really. <laughs> <laughs> it's te- well, it's tested people that live together, let alone not live together. So um, all right. All right, so your your guys in Florida. How many times have you seen each other since the pandemic began? Uh, twice. Um, so in total, we've seen each other for a total of twenty five days in the last five hundred and thirty nine. Yeah, not not that you're counting. And no, um, not at all. Uh, I hope I hope dinner ends up be like he can't just you know I don't want to just he can't just take you to Applebee's. I love Applebee's, but he can't like I hope the dinners have been good at least if you're not seeing very much of them. Yeah, no, the dinners have been uh, virtual and, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and creative. Yeah, let's just say that. <laughs> so when you hear that you can cross by land border, what will that do to change um, the effectiveness of being able to see each other more? Oh, huge. Um, I'm hoping frequency will increase. Um, cost will decrease. Um, crossing by land is, is really a lot easier financially especially now with all the um, things that you need to do in order to fly there um, I have two children so mm-hmm. to fly three of us down there is very expensive and then you throw the testing in there too um, I have uh, since the pandemic began and, and family reunification was an issue I was working very um, have been and uh, continue to do so work very closely with a group called Faces of Advocacy, where we help navigate through all the rules. And because things are so different in each country, uh, it takes a lot of knowledge to know, you know, when you're helping people uh, reunify safely, um, what, what the procedures are. So for me, focusing on my family while helping others, um, this is really going to help those that have financial relationships with Canada and the U.S., um, especially those that are at the border. I bet that, yeah, yeah, close enough to the border. And and we are. I think we really qualify in the GTA. Um, you know, we're not we're not in northern Saskatchewan or we're not in Edmonton where the border is, uh, you know, that's a to-do and you probably have to fly. Um, I, I, let me reset. We're talking to Kara Harris. Her boyfriend lives in Florida. You probably have torn uh, some of your hair out at times because of 
kind of the hypocrisy of being able to fly net cr- yet not cross by land. Who are you going to see more of and where are you going to run into more people, potentially unvaccinated people on an airplane in an airport, as opposed to be four or five of you being in a car and seeing one border guard and then you're on your way. Right. Absolutely. And that's been the point that we've made all across, but like, you know, along the, the last 19 months that we have had closed borders is, you know, what is more safe? Um, we always try to see the other side of things, but, and it's unfortunate that it turned political. Uh, we never did understand mm. why you could fly into Canada or into the States, I'm sorry, and not drive. Um, Canada was really great at um, coming up with uh, a way for us to allow our partners to come into Canada um, via land borders uh, with an exemption uh, process that started last October. It took us a lot to get there and yeah. continued to fight for other people. Um, but Faces of Advocacy, again, a group that represents 12,000 people that are in the same situation that I am around the world, mm. um, worked very hard to create that policy change. And we were there very thankful for it. Um, but there were still a lot of things to navigate through. Um, well, let's talk about that because there's one. There, that's the one thing I really want to get to you. And I, I got about a minute. I want to ask you about the PCR tests on the way back. I my heart kind of sank a little bit because I think we all got our emotional engines going. I want to do this. I want to do that. And then when you think a hundred sixty dollar PCR test, which Americans get for free, but we don't, on the way back, we have to wonder when Canada will drop that and go. We just have to move along here. Well, I wonder, you know, what kind of data has been collected since they started allowing Americans to travel into Canada back in August? Um, you know, what what are the numbers? What you know, they're randomly testing fully vaccinated people that are coming into Canada mm-hmm. while also um, requiring a test to be done three days before or within three days before. So I wonder how many people are coming in that are vaccinated that are testing positive and if they're going to use that data to possibly change uh, the testing requirements to come in come November. So I'm optimistic. I'm also curious yeah. to know what they're going to do about children who can't be vaccinated, like my daughter, who's um, mm-hmm. she'll be 10 in January. So she's unable to get a vaccine right now. Are they going to let her into the States? Because that will be the next thing that stops us from being able to essentially travel across Island. Yeah. Listen, it's I'm glad you're, you're with an advocacy group. Stay in touch with us on this. This is good news this week. It's a big step for when's your when's your boyfriend going to move up from Florida? What's, what's he doing down there? Golfing? Was he like alligators? Like, tell him to move up. This is ridiculous. We have free health care here. I know there are pros ah. and cons to having a binational relationship. You think <laughs> like that is one of them. Definitely. Yeah. Um, I've got intentions put out there that, you know, I don't really care where we are as long as we are all together at this point. It's really put a lot of things into perspective. Well, I hope he doesn't just nod and go, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, okay, I hear, you know, he should be putting out uh, strong. Anyway, it's, uh, I'm getting to uh, 902 and old Melrose Place-ish. We'll we'll talk more about it next time. Thanks, Kara. Thanks, Greg. Have a great Friday. You got it. Hey, we do What Happened When. Uh, an hour from now, we'll talk about the Halloween movie uh, that's uh, coming out. We'll talk about... Uh, I found this great Halloween uh, remix. Uh, Dave Bradley, Shiba Siddiqui, Rob Travis, enjoy me now. But it had it had an F word in the middle, and I edited it out. I don't want to have a lousy weekend. I really don't. I don't want, <laughs> I don't want an email at 1 o'clock that I hear an F-bomb. 
in the middle. Did you accidentally play something from Dave Chappelle's special in the middle of the Halloween song? I do not want. I'm turning my phone off at 9.05 a.m. this morning. I think Sheba is also. I feel oh, strongly about that. 100%. Because Peter Mansbridge called you. I explained it to Dave earlier. So what happens? P. Mansbridge oh, comes up goodness. on the phone while you're out? So listen, I never go out. I never leave the house. I'm not social. I like staying home. But once a month, I go with my hiking women. Right? And it's a wild, fun night out. Last night was that night. So there we are. We're all there. It's a loud, bustling, crazy, busy restaurant, right? Everyone's just having a great time. And my phone starts going off. And I never bring out my phone at the table. I think that's so rude. That's another so discussion rude, we Dave, right? I mean, right. really. Now, But I wear, an, I wear an Apple Watch. So my Apple Watch, I look down, and all I see is Mansbridge just going across my <laughs> phone. And I'm like, Mansbridge? I don't know any. What's a man? What company is that? Then I thought... Oh my goodness, Peter Mansbridge. So I answer the phone in this loud, busy, crazy restaurant. I'm all flustered that Peter Mansbridge is calling me, wondering where Greg Brady is. But it was a miscommunication. I guess it you was. I think I was where I was supposed to be. I was worried about it because I'll explain in an hour that I got lost in Toronto. Like but we lived in late. Toronto forever. I, I didn't think I was. No, you weren't. It's just late. he thought he thought it was over the phone. You thought it was over yeah. Zoom, and then he's calling me, and I can barely hear him. And I mean, you drop everything when Peter Mansbridge calls you. You have so. to. Yeah. Yes. By the way, Dave and I are having uh, dinner with our hiking women tonight. Yes. So that's really <laughs> I, now. If we were having dinner with your hiking women, that would be really ironic. <laughs> two, two nights in a row for them. Oh, they'd have a ball with you oh, guys. We think we'd be pretty entertaining. All right. Uh, what happened when, Dave? On this date. Uh, October 15th in history. 1951 was when the first trials started for the birth control pill. 1951. And still, no birth control pills for men yet. <laughs> that would have been, in the 50s, that would have been taking a leap of faith. It would have I feel been, like, yeah. uh, no matter who you are, man, man or woman, you'd be like, let's cross our fingers and hope this works. Yeah. Let's give it a go here and see if this works. It's never been proven. That's a really good what point. What are the consequences if it goes wrong? Well, many of them. There's many consequences if this goes wrong. We're I, 20 years old. I wonder if the trial suspects, subjects were on the fence whether or not they wanted to have another child. It was like, ah, you know, if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. It's, it's a great, good. it's such a great question. Like how, how close have we gotten? I know we talk, like we're putting QR codes on our phone. Men have been on the moon for 50 <laughs> years and women, but we can't find a pill that sort of limits our baby making potential, Dave. No, and Rob, then, I don't want to do leave Rob out. Rob's made a baby more recently than we have, so he That's know. true. But we all, don't we all know a guy who's had a vasectomy and then... <laughs> Ended up having a baby. A breakthrough because case? There, yeah. Yes, there's always a horror story. We all know somebody. One slips past the goaler. I yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a regular Freddie Anderson uh, moment. <laughs> we used to have this debate in university. So, and and uh, Sheba, you could weigh in only in the sense that you'd be like, what, what do you think men would prefer? Um, what would you rather have, a pill for birth control or a pill so you don't have to shave? I think it's, an, it's a fair question. I hated shaving when I was in my 20s. You'd get little bumps, right? Your skin would get rough, maybe some acne. Rob, I know you're, you're not shaving regularly as it is. so No, it's true. Or using a birth control pill for you <laughs> anyway. Yeah, so I don't need either. You don't need either? No. Dave, what do you think? Shaving I, A shaving pill would be great. A shaving pill would be Women fantastic. might want that for I, their legs too, but I, I don't know. I would take a shaving pill any day of the week because... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I only shave through the summer months. Winter time, it's beard growing season. And you and me got to do it at night. You can't get, you can't find time in no, the morning to shave. Oh, no that's time. Right. It's hard. You shave yeah. at night. 
Yeah. So you wake up all stubbly. It's, Can't it's you get horrible. laser surgery for that? Isn't there Can laser? you? I, there's laser hair removal. There's there total, and there's yeah. waxing, and there's yeah. I don't. I don't. I don't. I wonder why. I ask my husband all the time. Why do you shave? Like, why do men shave? Why don't you guys just go get wax or laser hair removal oh, or something? Wax hurts, but I have I a friend think... who plucks, and his face is like a baby's your bottom. Your face? Really? You can do yeah. your a pluck fa- a face that pluck. I got to be careful what I say here. Yeah, hours. He's been doing it since he was a teenager. Yeah. I get the eyebrows. Or no, he plucks his face. He's got wow. Bring him in the studio. I'd like to talk to him. But then. <laughs> like the, a man with a stubble is very sexy at the same time. Like a nice stubble that looks great. I, the yeah, the Don Johnson thing. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. five o'clock that. shadow. Yeah. yeah, I just dated myself there. On this day, <laughs> 1976, first ever vice presidential debate held in the U.S. Walter Mondale versus Bob Dole. I can feel the excitement. The scalpers were like, oh my God, we've got tickets for this. For the vice president. You know, the presidential debate (laughs) is one thing. Vice president, let's get them at each other. I didn't think that, yeah, I was surprised by that, and I didn't think they started that that late. Um, The best moment, I think, I don't know if you guys remember this. So it's Lloyd Benson and Dan Quayle in 1988. Dan Quayle was George uh, Bush's guy, George uh, Herbert Walker Bush, and he compared himself to JFK. And and Lloyd Benson looked at him and said, "I knew him. I served with him. You're no you're no Jack Kennedy." Which was, and then Quayle's got this like like he just had his pants pulled down. Yeah, like right. he's got just that a face, shocked look on his face. And then yeah. this year we had Mike Pence in the Fly, or That's last right. year at this time, yeah, right? The, the Fly on the top. The Fly of his never. Head that, really, that was great. Yeah, it stole the uh, stole the spotlight. All our HD TVs sure. came in handy. He had a Twitter <laughs> account within an hour. I don't know if he was saying offensive things, but the Mike Pence Fly was. And uh, that's was where rolling. that's where this was coined. I'm speaking. That's uh, yeah. I yes, get that, that by the way, call. sometimes. I know it's like, <laughs> if I interrupt somebody, I've gotten that a couple times recently. Yeah, yeah. that's true. <laughs> she even knows what I'm talking about. On this day in 2000 was the debut of Curb Your Enthusiasm on HBO. Now going into its 11th season. Are you guys fans of this one? Yes. Really? Yes. Now, here's one thing about my wife. My wife can't watch the same episode twice because the cringe factor. When mm-hmm. she knows the cringe is coming, something really uncomfortable about, you know, race, sexuality, whatever, because um, Larry David goes there. So she doesn't watch. I'll be like, come on, come on in. This episode is on where this happens. She's like, oh, my God, it was awkward enough the first time. Yeah. But she still watches it. I, You know what? I, I've watched it off and on, and I, I haven't been able to just plow through and, and start absorbing season after season. I know people who are like, I can totally binge watch again the the entire run of it. But I'm like, eh, I'll take it or leave it. Here's the interesting thing really quick about Larry David. He's he, So he starts this 21 years ago, as you say, Dave. He's 74 now. He was 53 then. He's never, he's always looked the same. Yeah, right? that's true. Bald, you know, bald <laughs> dude, really good point, glasses, yeah, yeah. white hair. He ha- so I can't tell if he looks 74 when he was 53 or he looks 53 now and he's 74. It's one or the other. It's great because you can rewatch the first season <laughs> and it, it's all the same. You're like, is this a new season? Yeah, what? it's not like Seinfeld when Seinfeld wore garish sweaters and yeah. had the puffy hair and you know it's one of the first couple seasons. Absolutely. That's right. Yeah. Finally, on this day, 1988, UB40's Red Red Wine goes to number one on the U.S. singles charts. Oh, Rob, you like your reggae. Is this? I actually don't. That's the one thing I don't <laughs> like. Not you don't I, like reggae. Not that oh, I'm I don't surprised. like it. I'm just not a fan. I'm just uh, my collection doesn't have a lot of reggae. I know there's black dudes in UB40, but I, I do think this th- this was seen as hijack. I know this was this was seen as hijacking reggae by like a bunch of white English guys right. at the time. Oh. I don't know if it's that's a good fair. Song or not. though, I liked it. It, it used is. to come on at like every school dance. Oh yeah, oh my God. totally. Right? This is the song. I also don't like red wine. Just. FYI. Oh, that's so it reminds you of being hungover or something? No, I just taste oh. disgusting. It's ruined grape juice. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
they're both bad spills. We'll put it that way. Yeah, it's true. They're very bad, very bad spills on Berber carpet. Yeah. Uh, that's what happened when. Thanks so much for listening. Really appreciate you checking out Toronto today. We're back with a live show on Monday after I'm sure it'll be a news-filled weekend. It always seems to be. Have yourself a great time with your Saturday and Sunday. Thank you for downloading and subscribing. If you haven't, please do so. And we'll talk to you Monday live, 530, right here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto.